Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode, a cyber gang is using threats of exposing victims to GDPR violations and subsequent fines to extract a ransom. Also, updates on the recent blue screen of death issues for those using certain MSI motherboards with Windows 11, and software issues wreaked havoc for travelers in Europe this week. For that and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. And that includes Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. First up this week, following back up with the blue screen of death issue that I covered on the previous episode of the podcast that's affecting some users of Windows 11 who are rocking some MSI motherboards. Well, Microsoft has stated that the recent blue screen of death issues was not caused by August Windows updates, which is frankly where they were leaning last week when I covered the story anyway. And bleepycomputer.com reports, the issue's root cause is an incompatibility problem with the affected device's firmware. While Microsoft are not taking ownership of the issue, they have said that they will temporarily mitigate the issue by not offering KB5029351 to Windows devices that may be affected. For those who have already deployed these updates and are experiencing the blue screen of death issues, the recommended course of action involves reverting their BIOS to an earlier version and uninstalling the problematic optional Windows update. So I think last week there hadn't been any prescriptive guidance on how to deal with the issue and I suggested, well, you probably have to remove that update. Well, if you're in a blue screen of death spiral, then it's probably difficult to actually get in and remove that update. So I guess it makes sense to revert the BIOS and then do the uninstall. Microsoft has also asked for those who may be experiencing the issue to please submit a bug via the feedback hub. And MSI have also confirmed that they are working with Microsoft to continue to investigate the issue further. Show sponsor Netrix Policy Pack have some great new features around making adoption and management of Windows Package Manager or WinGet a breeze. And that includes the Policy Pack Software Package Manager and WinGet Delivery option, where Policy Pack Software Manager makes it easy to mass deploy and update applications on your devices using WinGet. So I think on this podcast and also on Twitter, I've shared that I really enjoy uh, WinGet and in particular the simple parameter and option to update all applications on your device to the most recent version. And that's all well and good for me working in IT. It's very simple for me to simply run that uh, PowerShell command. Uh, but how to do that for mass deployments and updating applications across many devices? Well, you can do that and achieve that with Policy Pack Software Manager. 
And what's more, the Package Manager Helper tool provides a UI to audit what applications are on your machines. So if you want to make sure that your applications actually deployed and got installed using WinGet on those devices, you'll have some recourse and visibility using the Package Manager Helper tool. And make sure you keep listening to the end of the episode because I'm also going to have a very interesting KB article that was published by PolicyPack around getting WinGet to work on Windows Server. So keep listening for that. Potentially good news for those of us who live in the European economic area, the Windows 11 dev channel that was recently released has received an update that changes the operating system's behavior when operating system links are opened. WindowsCentral.com reports that Windows 11 will begin to respect your default browser settings. Soon, we may no longer have that option to select what to open things in, even though we've already determined and set what our default browser is. And that's been a real annoyance and nuisance for those who have adopted Windows 11 so far. So it's great for those of us, at least in Europe, that this may be resolved in the operating system soon. Ars Technica had an interesting report about findings from a newly published research by a team at Symantec who discovered more instances of attacks that were leveraging Microsoft signed certificates. In their own post, Sentinel-1 researchers theorized on the possible ways the Microsoft signing process kept getting hijacked, because as you may recall if you listen to the podcast regularly, this already has happened in the past and I've reported on it in the podcast. The Sentinel-1 researchers said that they are highly confident that the malicious drivers they mentioned in their report, as well as the ones from June 2021, were used by different threat actors, and it raises a very important question according to the report. Is the driver signing process being exploited by supplier or suppliers and offered as a service available to various threat actors willing to pay? And a competing theory, according to Ars Technica, is that multiple threat actors have compromised legitimate driver developers and used their EV certificate to sign and submit the malicious drivers using their developer account. They say that this scenario is less likely due to the requirement that EV private keys must be stored on a physical hardware token intended to help prevent digital theft. And other evidence supporting the supplier theory stems from the similar functionality and design of the drivers. While they were used by two different threat actors for attacks, they functioned in a very much similar way. And this indicates they were possibly developed by the same person then subsequently sold for use by someone else. So now multiple instances of legitimately signed Microsoft certs being used in attacks is very worrying. And the possibility of them being generated and sold as a service is a very scary prospect. The rest of the article that I'm referencing is pretty damning of Microsoft's handling of these incidents and even points out that they seem to copy and paste the response from an earlier incident. If you want to check out the full article, it's quite comprehensive. Uh, I'll share that with this episode, which you'll find at fivebytespodcast.com with episode 297. And on the topic of worrying security-related stories, Ars Technica also reported this week on a recent zero-day vulnerability in WinRAR, which has been exploited since April, with attackers using crafted zip archives that contained booby-trapped JPEGs and other innocuous files. 
The reports suggest the exploits have been in securities trading forms and the attackers have been using the vulnerability to remotely execute code that installs malware from families including DarkMe, Gooloader, and Remco's Rat. Which I don't think I've mentioned those on the podcast before, but I guess those are types of malware. <laughs> Interesting names. From there, the criminals withdraw money from broker accounts, and the total amount of financial losses and total number of victims infected is unknown at this time. Although company group IB said it has tracked at least 130 individuals known to have been compromised. WinRAR developers fixed the vulnerability and it's tracked as CVE-2023-38831. I recently blogged about WinRAR being used by cyber gangs as part of their attacks, so perhaps this is even more reason to find a way to isolate applications such as these compression and extraction utilities that hackers may try to search for on your corporate devices once they get into the network to possibly use those to extract some payload. Now, in this instance, this one's a little bit different because they're loading up zip files with some nasty things inside of them, and it seems like they're tricking users to open them. But on a previous episode of the podcast, I covered a different attack where once inside the network, the attackers were looking to see if WinRAR was available to extract their payload, and if it wasn't, they were downloading WinRAR. So... You know, cover your bases by not allowing things like that to be downloaded on your network and then further cover your bases by isolating applications. So if attackers get in, they can't see and use those. If they're not entitled to them, they're not going to be visible to them. And I'll share a link to that blog post that I mentioned uh, with this episode too. On Tuesday, Google announced the launch of its Duet AI Assistant across its workspace apps including Docs, Gmail, Drive, Slides, and more. These AI features and their abilities were previously covered on this podcast, but essentially, to me at least, it seems like it's a counter to Microsoft's AI enhancements and features within Teams and the Office Suite. For example, with Google's features, Duet will be able to summarize a conversation thread across emails, use the content of an email to write a brief, or draft an email based on a topic. In their Docs, it can write content such as a customer proposal or a story. In slides, it can generate custom visuals using an image synthesis model. In sheets, it can help format existing spreadsheets or create a custom spreadsheet structure suited to a particular task such as a project tracker. And Ars Technica have reported on the announcements and thrown some doubts on some of the AI features suggesting the AI integrations in Meet, for example, can suggest ways to improve lighting and sound and that sort of thing, but it's pretty mundane. And they questioned having AI reading chat conversations within Google Chat as they describe it as essentially being able to spring suggestions while a user is chatting. So it seems like it's actively monitoring and reading the chat conversation, which is a little bit hairy. The Ars Technica article features some examples of the image generation capabilities shown in Google Slides. And in my opinion, at least, the image generation capabilities seem pretty good. 
It looks better than what I get out of a lot of the AI image generators that I've tested. With the price set to be $30 a month in addition to the regular workspaces fee, this is a pretty spicy meatball to be honest. It's quite expensive, but I had the exact same reaction when I saw Microsoft's subscription pricing too. It'll be interesting to see how this is received by the community. Sticking with Google for this next story, but CNBC reported that Google would be selling access to a new API called Solar API, which could have some consumer value, but they hope to sell access to companies in the space such as Sunrun and Tesla. Some of the data from the Solar API will come from a consumer-focused pilot program called Project Sunroof, a solar savings calculator that originally launched back in 2015. The program allows users to enter their address and to receive estimated solar costs such as electric bill savings and the size of the solar installation they'll need. It also offered 3D modeling of the roofs of buildings and nearby trees based on Google Maps data. While Google plans to sell API access to individual building data as well as aggregated data for all buildings in a particular city or county. And the company says it has data for over 350 million buildings, according to documents referenced by CNBC for the story, which they say is up significantly from the 60 million buildings it cited for Project Sunroof in 2017. One internal document estimates the company's solar APIs will generate revenue between 90 to $100 million in its first year after launch. And as part of the planned launch, the company is also planning to announce an air quality API that will let customers request air quality data such as pollutants and health-based recommendations for specific locations. It'll also include digital heat maps of the data and, and hourly air quality information, as well as air quality history of up to 30 days. Now, if you're listening to this and thinking, what the heck does this have to do with enterprise IT? Not a whole lot, unless you're working in certain industries where you feel like your company may benefit from using these APIs. But I thought it was interesting because if you look at, say, the big players in our space, particularly for cloud offerings being Microsoft, Amazon, and Google mainly. Just in my opinion, the way things are shaking out, Microsoft has a huge advantage in the enterprise because they have that captive audience, particularly with Windows and Office 365 being so dominant. And obviously, once you've got those in your enterprise, you're relying on things like Active Directory domains. And Microsoft already has those customers paying for licensing, so they're able to incentivize those existing customers to adopt Azure services. While Amazon has been developing some key partnerships with say the likes of VMware to also stake a claim to some of those enterprise workloads, They've also got a very varied offering in terms of services. They have a massive global footprint and they seem to be quite popular for certain workloads in particular. Whereas with Google, it seemed like it was a smaller sized organizations in particular who were using the Google workspaces. It seemed like during the pandemic, there was a big push initially to Zoom, which probably ate into Google's business a little bit. And there's been this movement away from Zoom to Teams and away from Slack to Teams, it seems at least. <laughs> There's a filing in the European Commission for anti-competition in that regard. But it's interesting to see that Google is diversifying their cloud revenue and their cloud business. And this makes a whole lot of sense because what does Google do better than anyone? Google Maps. You know, I made the move from Android to 
iOS a couple of years ago and they were still trying to force Apple Maps on me. It's like, no, I can't live without Google Maps. Apple Maps sucks in comparison. And I don't know that anyone is going to catch up with Google at least anytime soon with their Maps data. So this is a way for them to leverage the Google Maps data and its superiority to sell this type of data. I think previously on the podcast, I'd covered that a Google executive had said that if Google's cloud was not a success, and growing significantly within five years, it may be retired. And while it has been pretty popular for like microservices and certain workloads, I feel that this type of service and this type of offering is going to be key to the growth of Google Cloud Platform. Thanks to Thorsten, because I follow him on Twitter and I saw his tweet, uh, but Citrix recently posted CTX 575025, which is related to an issue that AppVee customers or AppVee users who also use Citrix Studio may be facing. And the problem is that when attempting to update an AppV URL in Citrix Studio, they receive an error saying this AppV server cannot be modified or removed because one or more published applications are using it. The problem is caused because there may be apps configured to use the old URL. And after updating via PowerShell, you should test to be sure that your AppV applications are actually still working. And the recommended solution when this errors being faced and if your applications are not working is to use some PowerShell commandlets to fix the problem. And those are shared within CTX 575025. I'm guessing that not too many customers would be changing the AppV URL considering the state that AppV is currently in. But hey, you may have a need to just from infrastructure consolidation standpoint, maybe a merger or acquisition and you have to onboard someone, you know, it does come up. PC shipments have been forecast to grow by 3.7% year on year to hit 261.4 million units in 2024, which would put them above 2018 levels, but not quite on par with 2019 demand. Meanwhile, 2023 is predicted to sink by 13.7% to 252 million units. The register suggests companies may be confused about how to budget with generative AI reaching fever pitch. There is a concern that they may need to accommodate for design changes required to adopt generative AI. But the shift is already occurring when it comes to data centers with Meta and Tesla among those reevaluating their own designs and cooling mechanisms. The report suggests that there is also hesitancy on the hybrid work arrangements leading to a lack of direction on hardware refreshes. You know, are people going to continue being allowed to work remote part of the time, 100% of the time? Or are you going to bring them back into the office? Well, that may dictate what hardware you provide. Another factor driving commercial PC refreshes in 2024 and into 2025 is the end of Windows 10 support, as Microsoft is slated to retire the operating system in October 2025. Personally, I would think the fact so many organizations refreshed hardware are swapped from workstations to laptops in 2020 and 2021 is likely a big part of the reason why there's been this slowdown. I mean, if you're forced to en masse start upgrading people's hardware, maybe before that natural refresh cycle is hit, then you're resetting the clock on your next refresh cycle. It'd be very interesting to see if in 2024, 2025, as those who perhaps purchased in 2020 hit their four-year cycle, will there be a considerable uptick in hardware refreshes? 
And because manufacturing is still just recovering from that big slowdown caused by supply chain issues, are they going to be in a position to actually take advantage of this huge boon and have enough hardware to sell? I guess only time will tell. The Record Media had an interesting article this week detailing a new cyber gang using a never-seen-before extortion tactic. They tell victims if they don't pay the ransom, they will face fines under data protection laws like the EU's GDPR. The group labels its ransom demands as a digital peace tax. It is unclear if the gang actually deploys ransomware or if they just steal the data and they're being referred to as ransomed. The group's demands range from 50,000 to 200,000 euros, which is around about $54,000 to $218,000. So relatively small compared to some other gangs' ransoms. And those are significantly less than GDPR fines, which can go into the millions and even beyond. The record media suggests by keeping demands lower, it may increase their chances of having victims making the payment. Now, there is a very large section at the bottom of this article that debates whether or not the gang is actually credible, and that seems to be very open for debate. Perhaps they're just chancing their arms, and maybe they don't even have data. But as the gang was only just discovered, this is a story that may develop further. A very quick hit story now, but WhatsApp have launched a macOS app. So if you are a WhatsApp user, which it seems to be mandatory when living in Ireland, at least, that you use it because a lot of the kids' sports groups and activities require WhatsApp. Well, if you do use it, there is now a macOS app to go along with the Android and iOS apps that are available. The Register reported this week that the FBI, with assistance from authorities in France, Germany, the UK, the Netherlands, Romania, and Latvia, launched an attack of their own called Operation Duck Hunt on the notorious Quackbot Qbot which is a botnet and malware loader responsible for losses totaling hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. And they seized more than $8.6 million in illicit cryptocurrency. The FBI produced some software to drop onto QBot infected machines that renders the malware ineffective. The operation is reported to be the most significant technological and financial operation ever led by the Department of Justice in the US against a botnet. In addition to seizing $8.6 million in ransomware payments, Operation Duck Hunt also seized 6.5 million credentials that Quackbot operators had also stolen. Law enforcement is notifying victims of the credential harvesting and working with folks to help them recover funds stolen by the crooks. Donald Alway, who's assistant director in charge of the FBI's Los Angeles field office, stated, quote, we believe that this will effectively put quackbot criminal groups out of business, end quote. The U.S. law enforcement agencies declined to identify any specific individuals behind the quackbot infrastructure, citing the ongoing investigation, and has yet to make any arrests related to the botnet. You may have heard the news on Monday that flights to and from and even some over UK airspace were severely disrupted due to an outage of sorts with the air traffic control systems, which saw the ability to automatically process flight plans fail, meaning that flight plans had to be processed manually, which cannot be done at the same volume, which ended up resulting in a number of flights being greatly reduced, which obviously had the knock-on effect of delaying a lot of flights and cancellation of a lot of flights too. 
I heard from several people that I know who had their flights back from London to Dublin or Shannon in Ireland canceled. Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary chastised Nats, which is the National Air Traffic Services organization, and questioned the lack of backups. However, the CEO of Nats acknowledged that they actually have several levels of backup, but also stated that very occasionally technical issues occur that are complex and take longer to resolve. And in the event of such an issue, their systems are designed to isolate the problem and prioritize continued safe air traffic control. And he claimed that this is exactly what happened. And that is why the number of flights were simply reduced rather than completely ceased. They went on to explain that initial investigations into the problem show it relates to some of the flight data that was received and that the systems, both primary and the backups, responded by suspending automatic processing to ensure that no incorrect safety-related information could be presented to an air traffic controller or impact the rest of the air traffic system. There was also no indications that this was a cyber attack. Sky News reported that there have been reports that the issue was caused by a French airline misfiling its flight plan. Now I recorded this on Tuesday night and the issue started on Monday afternoon, I believe. So this is somewhat early on when I scripted this episode of the podcast. But this claim that an airline misfiled its flight plan and that the system automatically essentially shut down for safety reasons because of this misconfiguration or mishap has been bandied about quite a bit from different experts online and also from different media outlets too. And in response to this, the CEO of Nats stated that he's not ruling anything out at this stage. They also confirmed that the conclusions of their report will be made public, so I guess it will all come to light in the end. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. First up, I saw that Shane Hanselman of Microsoft shared a comprehensive introduction to C-Sharp programming course, which covers core concepts, syntax, and practical application in software development with C-Sharp. And the course runs about 35 hours, so it seems like it's pretty comprehensive, and it's all for the great price of free. So if you're interested in learning C-Sharp, or perhaps like me, getting a refresher on C-Sharp because I've been out of programming and really I do scripting ad hoc here and there so I really need to sharpen my skills if only at the time if I had 35 hours to put into it I would certainly do this course but hey if you do have the time this may be one for you now at the time of this recording again this was on Tuesday so I haven't had an opportunity to listen to it yet because I was in meetings when the live stream happened but there was a session on migrating to the cloud how do or should you get there And the guest on the podcast, which is hosted by my buddy Steve Thomas, along with Danny Gilroy, had a special guest, Tim Mangan, this week. Now, while I have not listened to it yet, my assumption, just because anything Tim does is great, is that this live stream was great. And luckily for all of us, the on-demand recording is already available. So I'll share a link to that with this episode, which again is episode 297. And to wrap up this week's episode, one last tip that I already mentioned earlier on in the show, but PolicyPack actually have an article that they posted on how to install Windows Package Manager on a server that you're using as a management station. Now, this is something that's not supported by Microsoft, but hey, when there's a will, there's a way, I guess. So there's an option. So this would give you an option to manage applications on Windows servers with WinGet 
albeit using a procedure that would be unsupported by Microsoft. But there is a way to achieve it, and this article covers that. So if you're interested in figuring out how they got that to work, check out that article. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening.